Hi, everyone. I'm Shampa Chowdhury, and I'm a current second-year MBA candidate at the Warden School of the University of Pennsylvania, and you're listening to the Warden Fintech Club podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Andre Simone, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Finca Impact Finance, our FIF, Global Network of Microfinance Banks and Institutions. Finca Impact Finance's network of 20 community-based banks provide responsible financial services such as affordable loans and saving products that empower more than 2 million low-income women and men to take control of their financial futures in countries such as Tanzania, Uganda, Afghanistan, and more. Previously, she served as co-CEO of Finca Microfinance Holding Company as well and the VP and COO of Finca International, returning to the organization after serving for several years as the president and COO of the Women for Women International, a humanitarian organization dedicated to financial, educational, and interpersonal support of women survivors of war, poverty, and injustice. You know, prior to this rock star contribution to this space, Andre also served as deputy to uh, the president and CEO of Finca, where she was critical in redesigning the organization's business model from a donor-based nonprofit to a for-profit operating structure still doing good. She earned her undergraduate degree in international relations from the University of Virginia and an MA from the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. And she also got her MBA in finance right here at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School as part of the class of 1999. We're so so honored to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you, Shanta. It is truly a pleasure for me to be talking to you today. I think we have an awful lot in common, so I am excited to, to spend some time talking about what we're doing with you. Exactly. Uh, There's so much to talk about from your journey to FinTech, to the international space, to being a woman leader in in the space as well. But I kind of want to start things off at where this all started. So, you know, you ended up in this space of impact finance. How did you get here journey-wise, if you were thinking about your life pre-Finca, especially thinking about Wharton, and, and you were in the shoes of many students here, how did your journey lead you to where you are today? Right. Everybody's like, where did she take a wrong turn? She's in impact finance. (laughs) No, listen, Wharton was actually incredibly formative for me and and just a a hugely valuable experience. So I hope that everybody who's listening to this um, really takes advantage of the community and, and gets as much out of it as they possibly can. So my life It makes a lot of sense when I look back on it, but I think it's important to admit that when I was in your shoes, looking forward, my ideas about where I was going to end up were slightly less clear, but always oriented toward social impact. I started out coming out of undergraduate, really interested in international economics and spent some time at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., doing research on securities markets development and corporate governance. And I've always been really interested in the impact that financial stability has on political stability. And so that was my baseline. And actually, 
was pretty satisfied doing research, but started talking to all of the policymakers in D.C. and pretty quickly realized that um, it was the finance people who actually wielded most of the power in driving decisions around where investments were made. And so it was pretty natural for me. I set my sights on Wharton and said, I've got to get there and I've got to get into right. international um, finance. And so um, that was my next step. Um, and from there, I did what many Wharton grads do. I went to work in, for an international consultancy, a company called Maricon Associates, which was a fantastic mm -hmm. um, experience for me. I got to work with lots of financial services providers, had fantastic, fantastic friends that I made. Uh, it was obviously intellectually challenging and stimulating, but it didn't have the social impact component that was really critical to me in terms of motivation and what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I think that everybody has to ask themselves the question early, if at all possible, around what kind of legacy do I want to have? And once I have worked the majority of my life and I'm looking back on my experience, what value, accumulated value will it have for me, emotional as well as financial? And so I had a very good friend who was working at this company called Finca that I had never heard of. And she called me and said, you should really come talk to these people. I, I think it's going to be really interesting for you. And so I went down to their offices in Washington, D.C. for a visit. I was very suspicious because it was a very nonprofit-oriented organization. Um, and yeah. it had been founded in 1984. And it was immediately lured in by the double bottom line of this organization where everybody said, listen, we can be financially sustainable. We don't have to continually rely on donors, but we can also have a massive impact on the quality of people's lives. And don't you want to get on the microfinance bandwagon? And I was hooked within the first two hours. And I actually took more than a 50% pay cut and, and went to work for Finca immediately. And I have been there for a very long time. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an amazing story. And I love how it kind of builds up in stages where the ingredients were all kind of ready before you made the decision, but it was kind of that one trigger finding the right company and hearing the right story that made you take the plunge. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, now that we're, that's life. <laughs> Right. No, exactly. And I think that's something a lot of folks can can relate to. I certainly can. So I think now that we're talking about Finca, I would love for you to just tell us more about Finca. One thing is, you know, Finca does so much. And there's also this distinction between Finca International and Finca Impact Finance. And you've all, all obviously been involved on both sides of that equation. I would love for you to just talk to us about Finca, tell us a little bit about it and also how it's kind of evolved or changed over the time that you've been engaged with it. That's perfect, because I think that actually tees us up for the evolution into the fintech side of things really nicely. So right. in the interest of making sure that everyone who's listening to this understands, I'm going to go all the way back to 1984 to the basic um, microfinance business model, which has historically been incredibly labor-intensive, 
Um, essentially, commercial banks uh, were unwilling to work with people who were financially marginalized, um, both because they didn't have any assets and so were perceived as a very high credit risk, but also because they were living in remote locations. And so the population concentration didn't lend itself well to the traditional branch intensive model. Microfinance went, okay, we can do this. And and used really labor and people's you know boots on the ground to go out into communities um, and work with right. people who were rural borrowers and the credit risk turned out to be proven to be very very low. There are two reasons for that. One is that most of microfinance historically has been business lending. And so right. um, it really does have a productive use. It's not straight consumer debt. But the second thing is that, you know, a lot of microfinance really depended on social collateral and people didn't get access yeah. to a loan unless other members of their community were willing to vouch for them. And that's actually going to, I'm, I'm saying that very importantly now because I want it to land when we start talking about FinTech. So Finca existed with that model, as did many other microfinance institutions, for a very long time. It was proven to be a profitable, if not highly lucrative, but at least a profitable business model. And that suddenly, you know, microfinance institutions and Finca's leadership and our, our founder and C, you know, prior CEO, Rupert Schofield, realized that, you know, the donor money that was necessary to seed these institutions wasn't going to be there forever. And we had to find a way to really take commercial debt on and to get access to equity investment. And so we began a pretty arduous process of transforming um, the entire network of Finca institutions into investable entities. And uh, Finca International formed a holding company um, and essentially converted what had previously been a collection of nonprofit institutions into a for-profit social impact organization. And right. so we got to that point and we had fantastic investment partners, IFC and KFW and FMO, kind of the, the international development organizations who, who thought that this was a worthwhile model to invest in. We had lots and lots of commercial lenders who came to the fore and grew the portfolio to serve over 2 million people and around $800 million in assets. Um, right. And then FinTech happened. <laughs> and, you know, FinTech has altered the landscape for all financial institutions. And I think it's actually altered the landscape for microfinance more favorably than for anybody else in a lot of ways, because the big obstacle for us as institutions has always been, how do you serve someone who lives three hours away? And the, mm -hmm. the cost to that individual, when the most that they can save is a dollar, let's say, right. they're not going to leave their business for three hours and travel to a bank branch where they have to wait in line for 25 minutes to deposit their dollar. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, yeah, right? <laughs> so exactly. technology, technology suddenly gave us this vision of we can wipe out all of these obstacles to our clients and find creative ways to let them 
take advantage of their money and use it more effectively and actually do the things like save um, that are going to help them to build their wealth. Yeah, I think that's that's incredible. So what are some of the use cases, if we get into a few examples, I know there's a range of different technology solutions from e-wallets to digital yeah. credit scores, et cetera, that, that you guys have involved in. would love yeah. for you to just articulate a few of those cool use cases that you guys have leveraged to expand your business model. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to talk about those use cases, but then I'm going to come back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of the social compact, because I think that that's the piece that's actually missing in a lot of the fintech models, and it's why Mm. we are not moving to a pure digital play. So we have had these these great experiences where um, we've created free mobile wallets that anybody can use. In Pakistan, we have partnered with a company called Finja to develop a product called SimSim. Basically, people right. can make payments through the SimSim wallet, which in Pakistan are typically very expensive to make. It's it's free to use. They can obviously check their own information. They can make P2P payments. They can make person-to-business payments. It's very flexible for them. That means that Mm -hmm. our clients don't have to travel as far. They can actually make purely digital payments if they want to, but they can also obviously go in anywhere and and get their money out when they need to as well, which gives them a lot of freedom and flexibility. And we have found that to be a very appealing tool for our clients. In Africa, in the Congo, we've launched a product called Click. Again, you know, very similar where clients can make payments, they can check their bank balances, they can make transfers, and all of that is awesome. But there are two things, and I think this is where fintech in the developing world is actually teaching us a lot about things that we might want to think about in the developed world, and and we don't necessarily look at it from that perspective all the time. Right. The the first thing I will say is that people actually matter when we're talking about behaviors. And and when you look at I think looking at the the data that's available on US consumer debt for example and and you say okay so we have very clear statistics now that say that um, a majority of Americans would go into debt if they have a $500 unexpected expense, right? Right. And, and that's from the, the bank rate survey. And there are lots of different surveys out there that, that basically give us the same information. So you're basically saying that people uh-huh. are massively over-indebted. What, what I see in the work that we do is that that person-to-person interaction that happens is really about how do you encourage healthy financial behavior? And I think it's difficult to really exhort people to make healthy financial decisions in the absence of a social fabric around them. There are are ways that institutions are starting to leverage technology to be able to do that, to use SMS reminders and other things. But the fact of the matter is, is that community is the biggest driver of how we feel about ourselves, whether it's good or bad. And so I think what's essential about our model and and why we're not going to the pure digital play is that we want people to be financially healthy. 
we're not in the business of just providing debt. We're not in the business of, you know, just driving the consumption of financial products. We are actually in the business of wanting people to be less vulnerable. And so for us, having a connection to the community and being invested in the risk of people taking on too much debt means that being able to change behaviors and motivate behaviors is really essential. So so that's one piece of it. The other piece is, is less oriented towards our mission, but it's a real fact that we are all having to confront in the space, which is that a lot of these economies that we work in certainly are still very heavily cash dependent. And so right. the idea that you're going to have a pure digital ecosystem is kind of pretty far down the road. You have to be able to yes. give people a way to cash in and cash out. And so what we've done really well in Congo is established agent partners In Mm -hmm. some cases, our agents are 100% proprietary agents, meaning that they are selected by us, trained by us, branded as Finca agents. In other cases, our agents are third-party agents. But basically what it does is it allows the client at 11 o'clock at night when the branch is closed to go across the street and take out the $2 that they need in order to pay for some medicine or something. And they have to be able to put their hands on cash because nobody is going to take a digital payment yet. And I, and I think that's, it's, it's an advantage for us in some ways. It will ultimately, we're going to have to prepare ourselves for a fully digital ecosystem. But for the time being, it means that we're still very, very rooted in that community. And we have a physical presence in that community, which means that we can also be better advocates for healthy financial behavior. Right. So this concept of social fabric, and, and I, I totally get that because We see that, as you mentioned, in developing countries a lot of times, the lack of incorporating the existing social fabric, existing consumer behavior and how they act, you know, currently do things has often led to, you know, high churn or high customer acquisition costs that have, you know, led to unsustainable business models. So it's truly impressive how you guys have managed to uh, immerse yourselves in the communities that you serve. I was going to say Simpson for me is a great example because when I was looking into it, just even looking at the video and, you know, documents around it, uh, of course, there's a business aspect of, you know, creating a win-win product there where it's free to use for consumers. It's easy. It's on their phone. For shopkeepers, you're creating the operational efficiency of a faster buying experience. And for kind of financial services providers, this is the gateway into giving more products that you can actually, you know, get get a lucrative return on like credit products, et cetera. So it makes sense from a strategic standpoint. But the thing that spoke to me most was just how localized all the materials seem, the references, the people endorsing it, the, you know, language around it, the way the use cases for it seemed very applicable to the local market in which it serves. So I would love to hear more about that because Finca does operate, it seems like everywhere and it's touching, you know, (laughs) markets globally. And these aren't the most developed markets, so they're very different from one another. But at the same time, you're managing to create offerings that are hyper-localized and very customized to the customers that you're serving. So how do you do that as a business? How do you manage to scale while still remaining local? 
Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, my dear, is the million-dollar question, I think, in a lot of ways. For, for us, I think the basics of it are financial services or financial services. The product suite it, it, at its core it is relatively common across all of the different markets. The, the big differences are in terms of how do you really understand the, the credit risk associated with every specific market, and then it is specific by market. And then also, you know, how, how do you talk to that customer in a way that's relatable? Because, you know, there's so much great research out there. I think we have grown up with such a volume of financial services offerings available to us that we treat financial services as a commodity. But most of the clients that Finca is working with are relatively new to financial services. And so for them, it's actually, it's a relationship first and then a product second in some respects. They, they come to us for that initial product. But when you interview our clients and you ask them about, about Finca, for many of them, you know, we were one of their first financial services experiences or we were the institution that stuck by them during the most difficult times when others were shutting down their banks and leaving these volatile markets. And so there's a lot of trust that goes into that. And I think you can only get to that trust if you really connect with the community. And that means that if you're working in Pakistan, yeah, you know, we started with SimSim, obviously with an English language app, but, you know, we developed an Urdu app because we wanted all of our clients to feel like they were comfortable and they had access um, to a tool that spoke to them in a way that they wanted to be spoken to. And I think that's essential, especially in the fintech space, because you can customize at relatively low cost. And we're not there yet. I definitely don't want to mislead anyone listening to say we have found the silver bullet in terms of how to achieve the right balance. Right. But what I 100% believe is that this technology that we have should not be used to go to the lowest common denominator. The technology that we have access mm-hmm. to should be used to, yes, sustainably always, but to sustainably serve people in a way that actually, again, helps them to make the best choices that they can possibly make. Because we're talking about people who are living on, the average client across the Thinker Network makes just over $3,000 a year. And that's right. not a lot of money. And they have and they have dependents and they're working and living in economies that have very high levels of political and economic volatility. And so right. it really if we want to build a better world and achieve greater political and social stability, I think a huge component of that is helping people to feel secure in being able to provide for their families. And so that's a very right. long-winded way of saying, yeah, you have to speak to people's culture because they need to trust you, not just because they're getting a product that works for them, but because you're actually going to be advising them on the, the very limited resources that they have, and they have to believe that you're going to do your best for them. Right. No, absolutely. 
And how do you manage the, the organizational side of that equation in terms of building out a team <laughs> with the right skill set and, you know, putting them in the right places to let you do all of this stuff? Yeah, well, um, so we have a huge organization. Um, and when I tell you how many employees we have, you're probably going to fall off your chair. <laughs> but we have over 10,000 employees, which, you know, by any standards is gigantic. But, but the vast majority of our employees are living and working in the communities that we serve. And so they are, in many instances, the, the first people in their families to have formal employment. And, and so we consider that to be part of our social impact as well. So how do we manage that? How do we find the right people? We, we are not a commercial bank like a city bank that has a brand that people will necessarily say, oh yeah, Finca, you know, I've always dreamt of working for Finca. So we tend to recruit people who have less experience, but a lot of great raw material or people who um, are just deeply passionate about the social impact side of our business. I cannot tell you how fortunate I feel to have the team that we have. We have people who come to us with 20 years of commercial banking experience or, you know, just incredible fintech experience and people who also come to us straight out of school with no experience at all, but who spend their entire career with Finca and move up to the CEO level. And I'm talking specifically about our our CEO in Congo as an example of that. And they stay with us because they believe in the organization. And um, what we've been able to offer people is, just first of all, you know, we're building it and it's a really exciting space to be in and they get a lot of freedom and a lot of opportunity to innovate. Um, right. And they're, and they're doing it for good. And so I would, I would almost think that it would have been harder for us to get the team together that we have. But I look around uh-huh. and I'm like, oh my God, I have the best team ever. And, <laughs> and I'm really lucky. And we keep looking for new people, um, especially on the technology side, because, you know, there, there has been so much that's happened in, in the mobile space in particular. And, and those, those people who have that experience are very hotly contested, particularly in, you know, the markets that we work in. Um, but again, we, we've just been really lucky to get people in who, who have that experience and want to be part of this journey. So, yeah. <laughs> no, well, that's so to hear. I think obviously you guys have been very successful at doing that and we're excited to see, you know, going forward, how that journey continues to pan out. Moving things back to kind of, you talked about impact finance, you talked about kind of microfinance being the core through which you guys grew. Through the time that you've been involved in the space, uh, you know, microfinance has had really boomed and came onto the scene post, you know, Eunice's book and everyone was talking about it. And then in more recent years, there's been a little bit more skepticism on certain models of microfinance, potentially not, you know, yielding all the returns, being too risky when it's scaled or profiting institutions versus communities. So I'd just be interested to hear, you know, that happens to a lot of people when they start businesses. It's maybe in a field that's hot, but then later, receive, uh, you know, skepticism towards their business model. And so I would love to hear how you tackled, what your thoughts are on that and how you tackle that skepticism through your journey at Finca. 
Well, great. I mean, I, I will just point out, it's true. You know, everybody goes through ebbs and flows. Every, I think, you know, every institution does. But I, but I will say that, you know, Esther Duflo and, and Banerjee and Kramer just won the Nobel Prize for a lot of the research that they were doing on microfinance and, and how right. we can improve people's lives through financial services. And so this is not something that's going to go away. And even though it may be, you know, less appealing or more appealing at different points in time, we still have, you know, over 1.7 billion people out there that don't have adequate access to financial services. And so it it is not a problem that's going to go away overnight. For me, I will admit that, you know, when I was just coming into the field out of pure financial services, I took a pretty crude approach to it. And I said, People want the product, therefore it must be impactful. <laughs> and, right. um, it, it, and, and that's clearly not the case, right? There are models, especially ones that focus on um, consumer debt, that I think can actually be damaging to people over time. I, a lot of the randomized control trials, some of the early data showed that microfinance wasn't very impactful, but some of the later studies have countered that and said, no, actually, it is it is a critical tool for people who are in poverty to be able to improve the quality of their existence. Can we do more? Absolutely. Is microfinance or finance itself enough? Clearly not. And I think you only have to look at the levels of over-indebtedness, as I was referring to earlier in the United States or in Europe, to say finance isn't a solution to people's problems necessarily, but it is a it is a necessity without which people cannot actually save and protect themselves against shocks, um, take advantage of opportunities to invest when those arise, um, and and provide for you know life's day-to-day necessities, and so. Every time somebody asks me that question of like, you know, why should we do this? I I look at the data that we have internally of people being able to send their children to school when they couldn't previously, being able to provide them with medical care when they couldn't previously. I go to Congo frequently. I'm in Kinshasa a lot. And, you know, I have met women who have never had a savings account in their lives who live on, you know, less than $1,000 a year, who have managed to save $3,000, $4,000 and build their own homes and provide for for a lot of members of their community. Um, And that's that's pretty powerful evidence, but we have to do it better. And I think that's the flip side of it. You know, we cannot be complacent about, about being more efficient and, and about giving people a greater share of their own money back. And I think that's the big challenge for microfinance today. And it's the thing that FinTech, I'm grateful for, it having brought this very sharp focus on this question of what does it really cost to serve someone if you're serving them digitally? We have a lot of opportunity to put more money back into people's pockets. And we haven't cracked the code on that yet because we as an organization are still investing in building the rails. But ultimately, banks, all banks, not just microfinance, but all banks need to do less of the gear grinding and being the pipes, right? Charging people to use the pipes 
Um, and more mm-hmm. of the sophisticated giving people the right products at the right time um, and helping them to make better choices. And the balance today, I feel, is still pretty heavily oriented towards we're going to charge you to use the pipes. <laughs> and, right. you know, yeah, I just don't think that's a sustainable model over the long term. And that's why I'm excited about fintech, because I think it's it's throwing that model into into self-reflection in a great way. Right. I think that's a really good point that especially having a mode for not charging for the pipes and rather letting that flow more easily to the actual pot of where there's value yeah. is a good dis- disruption uh, that that fintech brings to the scene. You've already touched on this. I think it perfectly teases up to just discussing about the future. You you already talked about fintech and you know all of the benefits it has in this particular sense, what are kind of the biggest opportunities or innovations that that truly excite you if you're looking forward? Well, you know, one of the biggest challenges to working in the space that we're in is identity. And so I I think that one of the biggest opportunities and that I am really excited about is how blockchain can be used to solve some of the identity challenges. And, and giving people control over their own information and being able to release that information to the people that they want to, but in a really protected fashion. We're not there yet, but there are a lot of governments and, and sort of supporting organizations that are really looking at that very closely. You know, obviously the Republic of Georgia has used blockchain really successfully to establish titles and land rights and things like that. So the use cases are growing but particularly for places like the Congo or like Haiti, where um, national IDs are a huge obstacle to providing people with access to financial services. I, I think that that opens up a lot of great possibilities um, for giving people the chance to control their own information and still have you know, a unique identifier. Clearly, I think one of the really cool opportunities is the idea that that crowdfunding can play a much stronger role in actually potentially reinvent what was great about the early microfinance models. So in the, in the very early microfinance models, we used, you know, social guarantees, as I mentioned earlier in the discussion, right. as a way to mitigate risk. And there right. are a lot of cool companies out there right now that are actually trying to recreate the social collateral model, but on a digital platform in order to make credit decisions. And I, I mm. think to, to me, that's really super cool. So, you know, obviously you have the, there are U.S.-based companies. I'm going to struggle to remember what they're called, but there's like social finance is one, SoFi, and then I think Lending Tree is another one. And so, you know, those are individuals funding individuals, but there is a platform in the middle that is, right. you know, helping to assess the risk. But then we've right. seen companies in, in Africa, really small startups, basically with the same concept saying, okay, we're going to put together a pool of individuals here and we're essentially going to crowdfund debt. And what's cool about it is that it replicates these old social models that people have actually been using for hundreds of years, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it does it in a way that's super efficient and right. it, it has a lot of transparency associated with it. And I think to me, that's kind of like the nirvana of what we could achieve with 
financial services and technology in a blended model, because you would have still that social connection that, as I was talking about earlier, helps to drive positive behavior, but on a platform that's as low cost and open as it can possibly be. Absolutely. Uh, It'll be very exciting to see how those innovations kind of further change Mm -hmm. the space and get get that acceleration on. Um, what about on the flip side? So challenges or risks that, you know, still keep you up at night or are top of mind for you? Well, okay. So true confession is I really have a hard time sleeping all the time <laughs> since I took this job. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I love it. So I think that the biggest existential risk for me is that we would actually recreate a financial services system that doesn't help people and that actually only helps make banks profitable. When you look back at like the the kind of 1950s, 1960s in, 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 in the U.S., there was a lot of education around financial services and there was an awful lot of emphasis on savings. And over time, that emphasis was stripped away and people have leveraged themselves into positions where, as I said earlier, you know, a majority of people can't come up with $500 without taking on debt. That to me is not the world we want to reinvent. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, and, and I was really pleased to see that there were a lot of CEOs that came out recently saying, yes, profitability, but how profitable do you need to be? For me, financial services is actually a public good. And mm-hmm. I, I think we, we need to think of some of the basic aspects of financial services like that. It doesn't mean that all of them need to be like that. But at a minimum, we want everyone in our communities to have some semblance of financial health and the ability to protect themselves when times get difficult and invest in their own futures. Um, And that means giving them access to the right level of financial services with the right transparency and the right cost. Got it. No, I think those are, those are large problems to grapple with, but it's something that, you know, you guys are obviously being very vigilant about, but things that hopefully in the future, we also see more ways for us to continue staying on top of the innovation with balancing that risk. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I think that, that, you know, just practically the big danger is that if we go to a purely digital model with the, the relatively limited data sets that we have right now in the, in the countries that we work in, you're going right. to be looking at straight consumer debt at very, very high interest rates. And, and that's kind of yeah. what, what the platforms lend themselves to, right? And, right, and yeah, so and that's distracting. Yeah, it's ex- exactly. And and unfortunately, you know, those are the fastest growing, which is great because it means that a lot of people have access, but they're also attracting an awful lot of the investment because of those high interest rates. And, you know, we've got to balance that out with building, I, I think about it like this, you know, so, you know, the whole slow food movement, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I want, I want think it to be the slow food of financial services, <laughs> You know, it it takes a little bit longer, but it's because it's better for you and it's going to be much more aligned with what you really need. And I think that all of those things need to coexist and challenge each other, but we have to make sure that those very large 
consumer debt oriented institutions don't crowd everybody else out of the marketplace. And then we end up with the same situation that we're looking at today. No, absolutely. And I think it's, it's impressive the amount of growth that Finca has been able to achieve, especially considering when typical companies and they're scaling, they're dealing with, you know, organizational challenges, unit economics challenges, uh, and things like that. And Finca is dealing with that. But in, in addition to that, there's the whole challenge of complexity of, you know, local markets and team growth, as well as this complexity of the fact that your purpose still needs to be fulfilled to, you know, the highest quality and the way you're achieving the economic growth shouldn't impose on that. And that could be, yeah. And it could be something that, you know, you guys are doing or things like that, you know, other players in the industries like those consumer debt providers, like you're talking about or doing could it impact any of these things. So there's, there seems to be varying degrees of control that you can exercise, but there's just a lot of different drivers to take into account. So that makes this, you know, very fast growth that you guys have experienced and the uh, degree of impact that you've been able to have even more impressive. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it, nobody who, who works in this field will ever say that it is less complex than managing a straight commercial institution. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the biggest challenge that, you know, all of my teams on the ground face, you know, just as an example. So, you know, we have launched tablet banking in a lot of our subsidiaries. So now we can onboard a client um, and disperse a loan in an eight minutes in Tanzania, just as a case in point. Uh, similarly, in, in Haiti, you know, we've got this huge emphasis on on using tablets in order to improve our productivity. And we're setting pretty aggressive KPIs. So, you know, in some cases, we've gone from being able to serve four clients in a given period to being able to serve 18 clients in a given period. And you have to be very business-minded about achieving those results and making sure that, you know, we're doing the best that we can by all of our stakeholders. But at the forefront of everyone's mind, there always has to be that intentionality of why we're doing it. Um, And that is divided into those two rails of, yeah, profitability has to be there. We have to be a sustainable institution or else we're going to go out of business and nobody's going to invest more money in us and we're not going to be able to deliver on our mission. And we have to stay on mission as an institution. Otherwise, we're just another, you know, we're just another commercial bank. And there are lots of great commercial banks out there that are doing their job incredibly well. And so I think, you know, for me, staying in that niche, understanding the uniqueness of the niche that we're in and taking the best of what commercial banking has to offer and integrating it into that. But with that lens, as you have said so nicely, of the cultural specificity and this idea that it's about trust and impact and sustainability. Uh, you know, that's why we exist. And for me, it gets me out of bed every single morning. I love the complexity of it. My team loves the challenge. And, you know, we are in it to close that access gap first. Um, but then really, um, because we want to help people to be financially healthy and I don't think that there are a lot of other institutions out there that are going to do the same thing as us. Amazing. Well, we hope that the you know trajectory you guys take on just 
keeps growing and you can you can address even more communities and see them grow through. So before we kind of close out the interview, I do want to touch on the fact that it's one thing that I'm personally very inspired by is the fact that you are this wonderful woman leader who's had an illustrious career in the finance space, the impact finance space, the fintech space, whichever way you cut the industry and, you know, has found this purpose that you've really created a a path, forged a path, or as you said earlier in this recording, a legacy for yourself through this. Fintech is one of those spaces being a confluence between financial services and technology where we do see underrepresentation of minorities and women, et cetera. So I would love to just get your thoughts of, you know, how how that experience has been and any advice or thoughts that you may have um, for future leaders or, or people that are looking to get into the space. Yeah, thank you. You know, so for me, it, it is a huge personal commitment that I have to to getting better gender equality and just diversity across the board in, into our organization because I know that that balance is just so important to success. I certainly have lived through experiences where I was very much in the minority. I worked for one company, I I won't name that company, but years ago where they gave us as a special gift, they gave us all neckties (laughs) to all of the employees. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, clearly the people who chose the neckties as the gift hadn't really cottoned on to the fact that there were actually a few women, you know, who were working in the space. But I think my guidance is probably twofold. My guidance is, on the one hand, try not to think too much about your gender because, you know, people are going to recognize you on the basis of your contributions. And I never thought about it very much. I was really fortunate because I had parents also who really never let me believe for a second that I was any different than anybody else. And so on the one hand, you know, performance, 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 and and focus on things that you love, that you're passionate about, and always be your own best advocate and find people who are going to be your champion and get yourself into those positions um, that you want to be in. And on the other hand, you have to be very conscious of gender. We all have to be conscious of gender, whether it's men or women. But we have to be really intentional about making sure that we are creating a, a balanced work environment. And so we have a, a gender initiative at, at Finca. You know, we have a, half of our clients are, are women. And so we have been talking a lot about diversity. And for me, it's just critically important that um, we're making sure that in the pipeline of qualified candidates, um, we've always got a, a real representative slate, and then we pick the best candidate that we possibly can. And then advocate. You know, we just have to keep talking about it. We have to keep right. surfacing that unconscious bias. And, and you know, it's it's actually, I think, a really great thing when people just have the conversation and say, is there unconscious bias here? And are we thinking about this in the right way? My sense is that we have a lot of enlightened people around us today um, who want to make positive changes happen. But if we're not having the conversation and we're not pointing out 
when we're slipping into old ways of doing things, then we won't stop ourselves. And so it's okay to be vocal. You know, it really is okay to be vocal and you can be vocal without being threatening to anybody else. Those are important questions that need to be asked because we all want the best thing for our organizations and for our society, which is we want performance. And, you know, we have to be fighting for, for the best candidates irrespective of, of where, where they're coming from, what gender, you know, what background they have. Right. And I think those are, at least for me, even personally, those are really good things to think about and definitely organizationally things that every organization should keep in mind. So thank you so much again for coming and speaking to us. This has been a very enlightening conversation and I've really just loved hearing about your journey and Finca's journey, and we'll definitely keep tabs on how that evolves over time. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. Listen, I want to keep tabs on you and where you're going, too, because I think I've been super impressed by everything that you know about the space, and I expect that our paths will cross again in the future, and thanks so much for having me on.